This is Our American Stories, and one of our favorite shows on television is Shark Tank, and periodically we bring you some of the great stories on that show because those pitches to the sharks are really stories. And this past week, Alex and Riyadh are up next in the tank with Potato Parcel, a service that sends messages on potatoes. Here's the pitch. Hi, Sharks. My name is Alex Craig. And I'm Riyadh Beckett. Our company is seeking $50,000 in exchange for 10% equity in our business. Look, Sharks, over the years, you've heard all types of elaborate, intricate, and over-the-top pitches. Well, we're here to keep it simple, so let's take this pitch back to our roots. Sharks, our company is Potato Parcel, and we mail potatoes, and that's it. Any questions? Wow, that was simple. Maybe too simple. Explain it again. So, Potato Parcel is a brand new way of sending anyone you know a custom message written on a potato. It's just stupid on a stick. Right? It's, it's actually stupid, stupid on a potato. Stupid on a potato, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. This is a potato company? Yes, it's a potato. Oh, I thought the outfit was uh, a pair of testicles. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Potatoes. my. Get close together for one second. <laughs> oh, You're right! You're right! Oh, as soon as they're doing the same thing every morning! They were each dressed like a yeah, potato. Yeah, <laughs> we, got, we got the picture. Oh, get that image out of our heads. Mr. Wonderful is a little concerned. So, gentlemen, what happened to your careers? What went wrong? <laughs> how, Alex, how did you come up with this? Yeah, I was on Reddit, and the top post of the day was a potato with stamps on it. And I thought that was a really funny idea, that you could mail someone a potato. 1.5 million people saw a potato with stamps on it, and I just saw an opportunity. Did anybody buy the potato message? What are their sales? So in 13 months, we've done two... $115,000 in sales. Wow. And how much do you put in your pocket? Well, I typically don't like to pay myself much to keep more cash flow in the business since we're still young. So you're reinvesting your profits huh? yes. into what, inventory? Inventory, hiring to help uh, with order fulfillment. So seriously though, you do 215000 real dollars and rather than just thinking we just made out like bandits, Let's put the money in our pocket. You keep going at it. You keep on thinking you're going to keep the business growing. Is Damon in or out? I'll be very honest. I just can't even believe that they're entertaining this offer. I'm going to sit back and relax and watch it, okay? So, I'm out. Now Lori is out, and Damon can't stop laughing. Taking this seriously as far as a shark investing is yes. crazy. I'm out. <laughs> Can you guys stop standing together? Just separate a little bit. Mark, what are you doing? Mark Cuban. Is this idea crazy or what? It's not completely crazy. Look, if you believe the potato business is a growth industry, it's fair. <laughs> in order to make this work, I need to see a path to $100 million in sales. But I need, so full of... I need, more su I need more substance. And uh, these are just empty calories, so for those reasons, I'm out. What about Mr. Wonderful? Does he have an offer? I'm struggling with the valuation. However, because I'm creative, I'm going to make you an offer. Oh, Let the sharks God. learn from Mr. Wonderful. I'm going to give you the $50,000, and I'm going to take the 10%. I continue to get a dollar until I've got back $150,000. Then I'm going to hire you to go work in one of my real companies, because this thing's going to go to zero at some point. Mr. Wonderful is in, and now 
So is Robert, apparently. Sarant, I have an offer for you. You do? I do. It's it's crazy. It's fun. I think you'll move a lot of potatoes. I'll give you the fifty thousand for twenty five percent of the business. So who gets the deal? Both offers seem really good, and I, I really love both of you guys. Um, I think the most sense uh, would be to make a deal with Kevin. Wow! Yes, Mister Potato. I can't believe we got a deal. I can't believe the company's been growing this much, and I, I really can't wait to see what's going to happen with this business. We're really going to take over the world with potatoes. I really believe it. Wow, Mr. Wonderful got a deal. That almost never happens. And now, it's time for Jesse and Shower Thoughts. Shower Thoughts. The first guy that died with life insurance never knew if it was a scam. As a teenager, I was told not to trust anyone on the internet and not to be stupid online. Now, I'm telling my parents the same things. (laughs) USB sounds like a backup plan in case the USA fails. It's pretty dumb that I get a new driver's license every four years and it's made out of hard plastic. And I'm supposed to have my social security card for life and it's made out of paper. There's enough apps for finding friends, lovers, and soulmates. I want an app that helps me find my arch enemy. <laughs> Using your old laptop to research buying a new one is like asking it to dig its own grave. Girl Scouts is basically a brand name cookie company that gets away with child labor. When I unsubscribe from a newsletter and get an email confirming that I've been unsubscribed, it feels like they needed to be the one to say the last word in an argument. Candlelight dinners weren't very special before the light bulb was invented. As an adult, I'm not eating nearly as much ice cream as 10-year-old me thought I would. My dog keeps bringing me the same toy. I wonder if that's his favorite toy, or if he thinks it's my favorite toy. (laughs) Great minds discuss ideas, average minds discuss events, small minds discuss people, is a quote that discusses people. (laughs) In FBI shows, cops are incompetent, unskilled simpletons who just get in the way. In cop shows, the FBI are bureaucratic, incompetent simpletons who just get in the way. The person who would proofread Hitler's speeches was a real-life grammar Nazi. (laughs) Casinos should let people play Monopoly with real money. Nothing says top of the food chain like squid ink calamari pasta. You're eating another animal and seasoning it with its own defense mechanism. At age 30, you've spent an entire month having birthdays over your lifetime. In a 500-day period, I could theoretically meet someone, get married, have a baby, and get divorced, and yet I'd still be using the same box of Q-tips. Shower thoughts. And this is our American story, Shark Tank, shower thoughts. More after these messages. our American stories and we love to talk about everything here 
check out our Veterans Day special, two hours. It's up on our website, particularly the hour on General Patton. His early life, the foundations of his life, war service back to the Revolutionary War, every other generation, a father dying for his country. Young Georgie had a lot to live up to. And you'll learn what drove him, his ambitions, his life at West Point. It is a remarkable piece of storytelling. Joining us right now, because we love to talk about sports, and my goodness, the battlefield, the gridiron, football, basketball, it's where we learn and prepare for competition and for American life, frankly. And joining us, as always, Nate Scott. And Nate joins us from For the Win, USA Today's leading sports site at FTW. Dot usatoday.com. Nate, thanks for joining us. Always a pleasure. All right, Nate, it's time for our Golden State Warriors Smackdown. Okay, early this year, we talked for a little bit, and the question was will Kevin Durant add to the team or subtract from the team? And my position was that add one more star to the mix and everything can turn to mush. And yours was give it a little time to work it out. And this team will be firing on all eight cylinders and watch out Cleveland Cavaliers. So state your case, Nate, for what's about to happen with this former, what I think is a former great team. So I'm, you know, sometimes I'm with you when, when it comes to super teams adding parts that, you know, it, it might all seem too good to be true. Um, that is not the case here. This Warriors team is perfect. It's perfect in every way. And we've seen it in the first nine games. You know, they've had two losses, which granted it took them a lot longer to get to two losses last year. How long did it take them but, last year to get to two losses, Nate? I just I want to remember again. 30... I think they were, tw- <laughs> they were 28 and 2 and something. Yeah, something, something like crazy that. like that. Yeah. Um, so. But here's the thing, you know, they're learning to play together. Last year's team was a special confluence of no one really knew how to play that team yet. No one was really certain that Steph Curry could become what he became. Yep. Um, this year, people know. That being said, um, they've added Kevin Durant, probably the only person alive who's as good a scorer as Steph Curry. Um, and, you know, I think you're right. When everyone's out on the court at the same time, it can get a little awkward they sort of take turns no one really knows what to do yet what they're figuring out how to do though is they're realizing there's 48 minutes in a basketball game and they can stagger and so what will happen is Kevin Durant will come off a little bit earlier in the first quarter and then he'll come back in with the subs and now the other team's subs are playing against a guy who was an MVP and he's just going bananas (laughs) so for me you know, they still have some defensive questions. They still have to come together and learn how to play together. But when all said and done, the ceiling on this team is so high. I'm curious what, why you think this can't work. Well, because I, I love Westerbrook. I think he was the underrated player on the Thunder. And Westerbrook, if you notice, had a nickname for Durant. Do you, do you, do you know what it is? I don't. It, it, it's Cupcake. It's Cupcake. <laughs> and every time he wanted to insult him, he called him Cupcake because – he didn't really like to move that much. He didn't really like to, you know, bang. He didn't like to set a hard pick. He liked to sort of shoot the long ball and then take a nap. And and Westerbrook was doing all the heavy lifting. Look, I was a point. I was an all-state point guard in high school, and I never got to D one, but I know basketball. And and I watched uh, Durant 
benefit from this amazing, this monstrous point guard named, named Westerbrook. And I think, I, think, I think he stands around too much. Watch the next game and watch Durant. He stands and he watches. In basketball, when even one player starts to stand around, the chemistry gets destroyed. And what was beautiful about watching Golden State last year, the year before, is that was like watching the 71 Knicks or, or Princeton's offense. It never stops moving. People are hitting you with back doors. They're picking. They're crossing. They're cutting. They're moving the ball. There's not a cupcake on the team. They're killers. And they move. And they have speed. And I know Durant's a killer shooter, but he's not that fast. He has no endurance. I submit he can't run the court all day long the way the Warriors did. And he doesn't like playing defense. And the Warriors are killer defenders. That notwithstanding, I think he's terrific and a terrific addition, Nate. Well, all right. Here's how I'll answer that. What I believe is that when it came to Russell Westbrook and Kevin Durant in Oklahoma City, they had a coach in Scott Brooks who really didn't know what to do with him. Um, I like Scott Brooks as a coach all right. I think he, he was underrated building some defenses in Oklahoma City. Their offense, Russell and Kevin took turns. It would be Westbrook's turn. He'd run up the field, run up the court, and he'd score. Then it'd be Durant's turn. Steve Kerr is light years ahead of where Scott Brooks was, and even where Billy Donovan, who's now in Oklahoma City, is. He's a much better coach. Yep. They're already working. Kevin Durant's already talking and saying, you know, they've got me doing these these backdoor screens and these off-ball cuts. I wasn't used to doing them, which is you know, kind of surprising that he won an MVP award without ever learning how to Without knowing a backdoor play, Nate? I mean, that, come on. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's sad. My hope is when Kerr, with a, with a great coaching staff in, in Golden State, that Steve Kerr is finally going to teach him, you know, if you want to fit in here and you want to be the star, we're going we're gonna, to, you know, you've got to learn how to do this. And once he learns how to do that, he's going to fit in with the first group. And with the second group, he can do what he always does. He'll go out there with the, the hard-working second-liners, and then he'll just score buckets. Well, what I worry about, too, Nate, is he's chewing up a huge piece of the cap. I mean, I'm talking about 26500000 And then you got Draymond Green at 15, and you got Steph at 12, and then you got, well, Andre's at 11, and Sean's at 5'7". And, and so these other guys, Clay's at 16. What's going to happen when their agents call up and say, hey, what gives? You know, Durant's getting, you know, 27 mil. My guy's getting 27 mil. I mean, I'm always thinking about the business of sports as well. And this is why Belichick's such a monster. We're doing an hour on Belichick and how he thinks about players upon renegotiation. You know what his theory is, Nate? Get rid of them. I don't want to pay. I'm on to the next chemistry experiment, the next new thing. And by the way, he's always shaking it up so no other coach knows how to deal with the Patriots. Because it's always changing. And he's not paying retail. And he's not paying because he raised their stock value. And, and he's smart. And so I just worry yep. for the Warriors that they've got this other problem, this business problem. This guy comes in from nowhere. Suddenly he's making more money than everyone else. And this is a team that already has a couple of stars. I just see that as a, the deeper, fundamental, long-term problem for the Warriors. And by the way, every business knows this. Your business is growing. You want to you recruit from inside that business. The Warriors really did. This was a, a chemistry experiment with a bunch of guys, none of which anyone thought would be a super top-flight, grade-A NBA talent. 
And now they're yeah. messing with that experiment. And I just think that, you know, teams have to choose who they are and what they are. And I think Kevin Durant was looking for a championship. And part of me thinks, why didn't you just stay home, Kevin? You're one or two players away from maybe competing with the Warriors. And learn the backdoor play while you're there. You don't need a coach to teach it to you. Don't you watch basketball? Again, it's my problem is really Durant, uh, as you can probably tell. Uh, Yeah. Well, for me, with the Warriors, with this new collective bargaining agreement and this new international TV money that's coming in, these new TV deals and these international deals they've got, I think the Warriors, when it came to the salary cap, they said, you know what, we're going to roll the dice. We're going to get a top 10 talent in here. And... Hopefully the cap will go up enough that we can pay everyone what they need to be paid. And you know what? That, that was a calculated risk that they decided as an organization, if you can take a shot at a really top player while well, he's still sort of on the, on the rise or kind of at his apex, yep. and, and you do it. As for Durant, you know, I argued last year that he should have stayed in Oklahoma City. I thought them adding Victor Oladipo and, and, and some of the other players that they brought in, I thought that was a really interesting team. And I thought that Billy Donovan was doing good things as the head coach. Um, so so I, I won't fault you there, but um, I still believe, you know, who knows? In a year or two, they, they say there's the disease of more. As people get bigger and egos get bigger, and, you know, does Clay Thompson want to go be the star on his own, or does Draymond want to be a star? You know, yeah. that thing can always happen. But I think for this year, I'm I'm still buying in. I just I don't think anyone can stop them. You know, the Spurs are fantastic. Cavaliers will be there at the end of the year, but I still think it's the Warriors. All right, well, we'll have a bet here. It's barbecue from Oxford, Mississippi, Memphis barbecue, and let's just call it Ben's Chili from up there in Washington, D.C. You think that's a fair one? Done. Love done. It. Done. Nate, thanks for joining us as always. We're talking to Nate Scott from For the Win, USA Today's leading sports site at FTW.USAToday. This is Our American Stories. We talk hoops, we talk war, we talk love and adoption. We talk about everything here on Our American Stories. American Stories, where we love great stories about music, sports, love, death, and business. But one of our favorite subjects is generosity and the generous things Americans do for each other and the world. Which brings us to our sweet charity series with our partners, the Philanthropy Roundtable, the nation's leader in fostering excellence and generosity, protecting philanthropic freedom, and assisting givers in achieving their goals. And the host of the series is none other than Carl Zinsmeister, They're head of publications and a modern renaissance man. Carl has authored 11 books, including two based on his time in Iraq, a storytelling cookbook, and even a graphic novel published by Marvel Comics. But of course, we know him best by his book, The Almanac of American Philanthropy. And here's a story from that great collection. Guess where the grandest collection of works by the great American craftsman Louis Comfort Tiffany is located? 
I'm talking about shimmering leaded windows, rainbow-colored lamps, sparkling jewelry, sinuous curves of blown glass, even an entire prayer chapel from floor to vaulted ceiling. Nope, the great trove of Tiffany art is not in New York City, where he lived and worked. Would you believe it's actually located in Winter Park, Florida? So how did a small community near Orlando become the treasure chest for this iconic American art? The short answer is philanthropy. Let me untangle the story for you. Perhaps the very greatest creation of Louis Tiffany was his home in suburban Long Island, known as Laurelton Hall. Over a period of years, the artist, who was also a very successful businessman, built there not only a grand house where he kept some of his greatest masterpieces, but also a freestanding art museum, an art school, a building where he installed the stunning Tiffany Chapel that he designed for the 1893 World's Fair, an incredible set of gardens, and more. This home was Tiffany's pride and joy, and many of his most interesting stained glass windows, other art glass, lamps, ceramics, paintings, furniture, and room designs ended up there. Here's Hugh McCain, one of the heroes of this story, whom I'll introduce you to in just a minute, describing one corner of Tiffany's remarkable house. It was like nothing I'd ever seen before. For example, some of the light came from a vase in the center of the, of the court. And the vase had water running out of the top of it. And Mr. Tiffany had worked it out so that water came in the bottom and flowed very quietly out of the top. The vase changed colors. The fountain was lighted by a, a series of color wheels that turned. But Mr. Tiffany had it worked out so that different combinations, almost an infinite number of color combinations would fall on that vase so that you, you couldn't really predict what color it would be next. But then to make it all the more wonderful, it was a pipe organ. Organ music roaring down from the, rolling down from the top of that court. Then, oh, over those floors, he had polar bear rugs, and they were mounted so that it looked like the head was going to bite you. He thought of beauty, obviously, as a way of life. When Tiffany died, he left an endowment so the property could keep operating as a public gallery for his life's work and a school for instructing a new generation of artists. But fate intervened, the money ran out, and eventually much of his estate was abandoned. Then a disastrous fire swept the premises. This was a really calamitous end to the career of one of America's greatest designers and visual artists. Preparations were actually being made to bulldoze the rubble. That would have also buried much of Tiffany's reputation. You know, tastes in art can be extremely fickle and trendy. Though it seems hard to believe now, there have been periods in history when Bach, for instance, was discounted and almost forgotten. Vincent van Gogh, Herman Melville, Louis Sullivan, and lots of other great artists nearly disappeared from sight during certain eras, their work brushed aside by newer fashions. And Tiffany, too, fell out of favor in exactly this way. So when his home went up in smoke in 1957 and his masterpieces were buried in ash, many modern arbiters of culture just yawned. But Jeanette and Hugh McCain did not yawn. They thought it would be a tragedy to let Tiffany's work be bulldozed aside for something more modern. 
So they leapt into action and literally plucked hundreds of gems and nuggets out of the ashes, saving them for future generations of more appreciative Americans. This was classic philanthropic daring-do and swimming against the stream. Jeanette was the granddaughter of the great American industrialist and donor Charles Hosmer Morse, and she was continuing her grandpa's tradition of vigorous philanthropy. She loved Tiffany's revolutionary glass and his gorgeous decorative work and really didn't care a hoot that art elites had turned their backs on the man after his death. Her husband, Hugh, who you heard it from just a couple minutes ago, shared that same admiration, having studied art himself at the Tiffany estate during the 1930s. This couple had private resources, a generous spirit, and a willingness to act. The philanthropists offered the Tiffany family a payment for the right to salvage whatever they could from the Laurelton Hall burn. Then they picked through the wreckage, retrieved objects, and transported them to their home region in Florida for conservation and reconstruction. Today, some of Tiffany's greatest creations can be seen in the museum that the McCains created and named in honor of Jeanette's grandfather. I visited the Charles Hosmer Morse Museum recently and found it a stunning revelation, a real gem, and all the more delightful because it pops up in an unexpected corner of America. There are stunning examples of Tiffany's lush windows of stained glass, beautifully restored. There are mosaics and many rich ceramics, which gave me a new appreciation for that part of Tiffany's work. There are wondrous lamps and blown glass, um, some of Tiffany's ambitious landscape structures which were influenced by Islamic and Asian motifs, have been rebuilt exactly as they existed on the Laurelton Hall grounds. And there is a full Tiffany Chapel, the one he created for the World's Fair, now intact in its own section of the museum. There's also some interesting work from Tiffany's contemporaries and other artists. These include paintings by John Singer Sargent, Maxfield Parrish, Thomas Hart Benton, uh, Samuel Morse, and others. Competing stained glass from makers like John Lafarge and William Morris is on display. You'll find jewelry by Lalique and Fabergé and furniture created by Gustav Stickley, Frank Lloyd Wright, and other designers. All of these are matched with Tiffany's own designs in each of the categories, and it's a really bracing, stimulating mix of distinctive art and artistry. These Tiffany-related treasures are concentrated and shown to particular advantage today thanks to an impressive $5 million addition built onto the museum a few years ago by the foundation that the Hosmer family established. The Charles Hosmer Morse Foundation still owns all of these works that it rescued from destruction. And the foundation operates the magnificent museum that makes this art available to the American public without a penny of government support. If you're a fan of Americana and great art, you really should swing by the Morse Museum the next time you're in the Orlando area. And as you view the delicate pieces, try to envision many of them encased in black soot and gray ashes, and then say a quiet thank you to the stubborn philanthropists who refuse to let these sparkling bits of American creativity be tossed aside. Jeanette and Hugh McCain did us all a public service with private energy and money. And great storytelling, as always, by Carl. And again, the Almanac of American Philanthropy. Pick it up, and there are stories that abound. Really rich people doing remarkable people with their money. And people who never did much more else than clean other people's homes. 
ordinary Americans saving, saving and saving some more because they had a deep need, a calling, I would say, to help others and serve others with their money. Sweet charity from Carl Zinsmeister and the great folks at the Philanthropy Roundtable. This is Our American Stories. Go to ouramericannetwork.org to listen to all that we do. That's ouramericannetwork.org. myself today to see if I still feel I focus on the pain the only thing that's real the needle tears a hole the old familiar sting Try to kill it all away But I remember everything This is Our American Stories And we're playing Johnny Cash's Hurt The cover of Trent Reznor's great song Because we're doing a segment About recovering from addiction Which we do from time to time Because it's a problem that hits almost every American family in some form or another. Here in Oxford, Mississippi, where we broadcast from, a beautiful town not far south from Memphis, they had an event titled Telling Oxford. Six addicts and 100 members of the community got together at an old power plant, ate dinner, and shared stories about how they overcame addiction. And our faith went over there to cover it. And this is one of those stories from a 23-year-old named Carol. She starts by describing how addiction destroys hope. The hopes and dreams kind of seem to be my theme and kind of seems to be what's going on in my life today. You know, when you're little, people always ask, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I wanted to be a nurse. Like, that was, I knew that, like, 100%. You know, I grew up with the most amazing parents that you could ask for. Um, I had a great childhood and couldn't have been better. I was hopeful as a kid, you know, I had a lot of hope, Um, I've always known that I want to get to be a mom one day, Um, I just kind of know that in my gut, you know, I think as I got older I continued to stay hopeful, but when drugs were introduced to me and I made the decision to use for the first time, I didn't know what all I was giving up at that time. I started using drugs and alcohol when I was 17 years old, um, getting ready to graduate high school. It didn't take long for me, for my life to spiral out of control. You know, that hope was gone. Um, The hope to be anything that I'd ever maybe thought about. You know, I just couldn't even fathom having those feelings again or having that kind of hope to want to do anything else in my life. Carol further shares how addiction had taken hold of everything. 
you know, I spent the next couple of years in and out of um, treatment centers, jails, and other institutions. You know, a lot of people have that thought of, um, you know, oh, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quit doing this, I'm going to quit this time, I'm going to try it again, I'm just going to do something different. But that by the time I got ready to come, before I came to treatment here, there was, like, no more quitting. I, I kind of just surrendered to that my life, I was going to be a junkie for the rest of my life, and that that's just the way it was going to be, and I, and I almost was just okay with that, or so I thought, you know. And when I came to Oxford, I didn't know if I wanted this thing. Like, I didn't know if I wanted a life of recovery because I couldn't imagine what that would look like. I thought I had ruined any possibility of having meaningful relationships with any, any person. Uh, my family, thank God, had to love me from a distance. You know, they had to make the decisions to not financially support me or let me live in their house or let me have a car of theirs um, if I was choosing, you know, to live that kind of lifestyle. And, you know, thank God that they did, that I didn't have very many, very many enablers in my life. Luckily, Carol had that kind of family, but even with a loving family, she realized that she needed to seek further help to break free from drugs. And she found that in her new home here in Oxford. What I found here um, was hope that I'd had. Um, and it was a new, a new kind of hope. You know, I met a lot of the speakers tonight and have all played vital roles in my life and in my recovery. You know, in particular, they, they had found a reason to keep living and were able to do so without the use of mood or mind-altering substances or behaviors because it's not just drugs and alcohol that we struggle with. It can be anything. I got here and I saw that in these women and, you know, men too, but I, and I just clung on to that. You know, y'all there that are here tonight and getting to do that showed me and, and introduced me to more people. That were like, hey, you're, we're not alone. There's more of us that know how to that live a life. Where there's more of us that have felt hopeless too, and that showed me that how to do that. You know, introduced me to hundreds of people my age. I was 20 years old when I got here, and if I make it, my birthday is Monday, and that'll be my third birthday in a row. I celebrate clean and sober. <laughs> Pretty damn cool is right. Three years sober, she did that by taking it one day at a time. Carol's hope returned as her life began to change. You know, my life now uh, is beyond my wildest dreams. Um, you know, I get to be a, you know, I'm an addict amongst, amongst other things, like I said earlier. I'm an employee. I'm a, I'm a really good employee, which is like not familiar for me back in the day. You know, I just got a new job, like, as a manager somewhere, and um, it, it blows my mind. That, and I'm able to do that, and I show up there regularly, like, when they ask me to. And I, <laughs> y'all get it. The ones that are laughing, y'all get it. And, um, and I, feel, I feel so proud of what I get to do in my life today. A little bit later, Carol talked about learning the importance of taking care of herself. And then she talked a little bit about the fact that she was not the only one who had at one point lost hope. No one thought she would make it. Carol proved everybody wrong. You know, when I was in high school and I was starting to spiral out of control and using drugs and alcohol, I had not one but two teachers tell me that I would never make it to college, much less graduate or do anything. 
I'm a full-time college student and I'm in the Honor Society at Northwest Community College here in Oxford and I'm beyond proud of that. Um, you know, if you would have asked me. <laughs> you know, and I, people say, well, someone asked me today, just a few minutes ago, Angie was, you know, well, what, what are you going for your degree in? And I've changed my mind so many times because, and I know this sounds harsh, but I really just didn't expect to live this long. I, when I lost that hope, I really, I just didn't know. I mean, 23, I'm just, I'm kind of winging it right now and just figuring it out as I go. God, it's, things are so, there's so much hope in recovery. And to say that, you know, there have still been times that I have been in this program for a little over two years now that I've struggled, that I've wanted to give up several times. But there's people here in this town, it's so special to me. You know, I know this is a worldwide, recovery is worldwide, but we have something so special in Oxford. We really do, of people who just truly care about your well-being. That's not negotiable for me to have people in my life that just aren't, you know, genuine and really care about each other, you know, down to the core. Even when it hurts, you know, I've surrounded myself with women who will help me to see when I'm in the wrong. And that's important for me. Because just like Billy said, you know, I'm just one drink, drug, or anything. I can go right back to that lifestyle. So true and so raw. Carol closes with gratitude for her friends, for her family, for unconditional love. Those moments of clarity that you have that are, can be real small, that can be life-changing. Is, you know, I think one of the last times that my mom had to see me through a glass window in an orange jumpsuit. You know, I, I pray she never has to do that again. She didn't ask for this either. It is a family disease, and I truly believe that with every piece of my body that it affects every person involved. I'll never know what it's like, I hope. I, at this point in my life, I, I don't know what it's like to be a parent of a, an addict or an alcoholic or someone struggling with the disease of addiction, but I can only imagine how hard it would be I don't think that our family members and friends even get enough credit for being superheroes, for trying to love us through that. I'm just really, really, really grateful to have that. The people I've surrounded myself with today just, they love me, and I just, they just because, they do. Like, there's no, I haven't, I don't have to do anything for that love, you know? Um, they just love who I am as a person. If you've ever kind of been in that realm in the world of addiction, that's not so much the case. We're not, and I'm not able to do that either. I'm not able to truly love people um, at the core of my being if I'm using drugs and alcohol. And thanks for sharing, Carol. And by the way, we did a a piece on a mom who wrote a letter to her heroin-addicted daughter. And so, no, if you want to know what it's like, you can catch that, Carol. We could share it with you. And Faith, what brought you to this story? You know, the goal of this event, Lee, was to just help remove the stigma that surrounds addiction. Um, These are our friends, our family, our brothers, our sisters, our cousins, you know, and they were so brave to share their stories in this way. Um, I just think that another goal of the event was to greatly to emphasize just how addiction is a disease and that what do you do with people with diseases? You treat them, you get them support and help, and you can't do that when it's not out in the open, and that's how they're going to get the support and help when they're able to share without fear of judgment. Well, I think that's what we heard, and thanks to the Oxford Treatment Center for doing this, and thanks, Carol, for your courage, and it sounded like a whole bunch of people there supporting her, and it is one day at a time, 
and it is forever. Anybody who's been around an addict knows this and knows it deeply. So always be praying for them. If you're praying, you're the praying type, and we many of us are here in Our American Stories. Say a prayer for anybody you know. Root for them. They need your love, and they need particularly, as you heard it, unconditional love. they got to get away from that shame. They've got to break that shame, and as Faith said, that stigma. This is Our American Stories. We tell you every kind of story here. Recovering from addiction is one of the regular segments on our show. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to listen to all that we do. our American stories and on this show we like to profile people from all walks of life from titans of industry musicians philanthropists politicians athletes and soldiers you name it we also like to talk with everyday honest and hard-working Americans to get a snapshot of their life and time without all the frills and sensationalist noise that we see and hear all too often on TV and on the radio today we bring you the story of Brock Smith a successful small business owner who lives here in the town we broadcast from, Oxford, Mississippi. Brock owns and operates several antique stores throughout the area and also makes money buying, selling, and trading arrowheads. Brock came by the studios recently and sat down with our own Jesse Edwards to share his story. Brock Smith, I was born actually in Memphis, Tennessee, but lived in uh, Tupelo, Mississippi most of my life up through high school. Um... And now I live in Oxford. I've been here for about the past about fifteen years. Uh-huh. So. Who were your Who were your parents? Uh, my parents, uh, Nelda Horton. Uh-huh. Uh, my dad is Jerry Smith. He's been in Oxford residence uh, for, I guess, most of his life. So, what What does they do? Uh, my mom, she's actually an interior decorator, and my dad was a factory worker for most of his life. So nice. he was also in the National Guard. Um, I guess it was the first Gulf War. He was active for that. Um, and you, did you grow up around the Memphis area? No, actually, that was just, I think back then, that was the, the best hospital to go to uh-huh. <laughs> to have a baby. So um, really just went up there, and when I was born, they, they moved back to Oxford. So uh-huh. so you, you grew up in Oxford area pretty much? Yeah, my, my parents actually divorced when I was young, and uh, so my mom moved to Tupelo, and my dad stayed in Oxford, so I spent about equal time in both places yeah. so did you ever have any uh, stepdads or anything like that growing up stepdad my mom remarried when i was uh probably about seven uh his name is tim horton and mm-hmm. he's the one that lived in tupelo so his his family grew up there uh and was pretty much there all his life yeah. so did you have your, your father was in your life at all or did oh you yeah. Kinda, yeah yeah he was uh he pretty much got me every weekend mm-hmm. i would come over here to oxford and uh you know we'd spend time traveling and doing outdoor stuff. So mm-hmm. uh, he was, you know, pretty much equal time with my dad and mom. Yeah. What was uh, going up through uh, high school like for you? It was, uh, you know, it was a good high school. Tupelo was a good good school. Uh, it was, you know, having 
divorced parents was socially a little different because, uh, you know, most of the time on the weekends I came to Oxford, so mm-hmm. uh, didn't really hang out with friends as much on the weekends as a lot of people did. But it was kind of good, gave me some, you know, varied experiences and, uh, you know, got to see two different towns growing up, which was kind of cool. So, Did you ever get to get out of the state when you were younger and go see uh, any any part of the country? Or? Uh, a little bit. Um, when my dad was uh, training for the first Gulf War, um, he did training in uh, Texas in mm-hmm. Fort Hood. So uh, we had a little family trip where uh, I guess one of the local, I don't know if it was a local charity or something, but they, they hired a tour bus and let all the family go out to visit uh, visit the, the people that were training for the war. So mm-hmm. I got to go out there and hang around at Fort Hood for a little while, and we traveled around Texas and did some stuff there. Yeah, uh, And then we, we would travel quite a bit to uh, – Arkansas had some family there, and mostly surrounding states of Mississippi. So, so did you, did you go to college after high school? I actually went to Mississippi State College for one year, mm-hmm. and uh, didn't really know what I wanted to do yet. So, um, had a buddy that was going into uh, land surveying, and he was mo- most of the people around here that go into land surveying get a two year degree mm-hmm. in civil engineering. So, I transferred to Northeast uh, Community College and got a two year degree in civil engineering technology. So for about 10 years after college, I did land service. 10 years. Nice. Mm-hmm. What was your, what was your very first job growing up? Um, probably helping summers with my, uh, cousin from Arkansas. He had a fencing company and I mm. uh, helped him install some fences. Uh, so I guess that was really my first summer job. Yeah. Uh, it's pretty hot out there putting in fence hosts. Pretty hot, especially in Mississippi. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Actually, I also had another, my other first, I guess, technically job before that was uh, I had a cameo appearance in uh, the gun in Betty Lou's handbag that was filmed here in Oxford. Oh. So <laughs> somebody was talking about that the other day. So you got to be an extra? Or got you? to be an extra. And, of course, when I was, I was probably maybe eight, nine years old when that happened. And, of course, I got a check for maybe 80 bucks. <laughs> so back then I thought that was a home run for yeah. standing in the you know, street for a few minutes. So, Not bad. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty cool. So uh, you're you're a small business owner now. Tell us about uh, what you do. Uh, currently, I own. Uh, I actually have a partner, business partner, but we own three antique stores here in Oxford. We have the Depot Antique Mall, um, Tommy's Antiques, and the Depot Flea Market. Mm-hmm. Um, we uh, sell all kinds of antiques, furniture, collectibles, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So, how, how did you get into that from from going into uh, from, from from being a, a surveyor to to get into antiques and stuff like that uh i guess it it probably was uh you know just growing up i was always interested in history Uh, a lot of the little weekend trips me and my dad would go on would be to you know civil war battlefields and museums and that kind of thing so i always had an interest in old stuff uh and then of course getting into collecting indian artifacts uh just just anything old and historical was always interesting so um just kind of got a knack of being good at trading in it and, uh, you know, being able to know what stuff like that's worth and, you know, that kind of thing. I also enjoy retail because you get to meet meet different people and, uh, you know, help customers, and that's that's enjoyable. Arrowheads.com, is that is that your outfit or is that your partner's? Or yes, your my, my partner owns that. I, I pretty much uh, help him with it and handle all the – anybody that has questions about artifacts or looking to sell artifact collections. Mm-hmm. Uh, I handle all the emails, appraisals, that kind of stuff with it. This is Our American Stories, and you're listening to the story of Brock Smith. 
a local business owner from Oxford, Mississippi. When we come back, we'll hear more from Brock about his life as we profile the stories of everyday, hardworking Americans right here on Our American Stories. to Our American Stories. And by the way, to catch all of our work, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. Now we continue our interview with Brock Smith, a local business owner here in Oxford, Mississippi, as we continue our series on Everyday Americans, where we cover who they are, where they come from, and what makes them tick. Here's Jesse Edwards. So yeah, we say uh, artifacts. We're, we're mostly talking about what most people would call arrowheads, arrowhead right. collecting. Yeah, mm-hmm. kind of a it's a part of an American pastime that that a lot of people uh, might not know about. Uh, but uh, you you kind of got in a little a bit of a scuffle with some one of the, the university professors here not too long ago who was who, who was saying that basically uh, you shouldn't be allowed to uh, to hunt for arrowheads and right. that they should they should be uh, preserved or kept you know in a, in a locker somewhere in the college away from people to see so they could be saved or something like that so well what's your uh, what's your take on all that yeah that was uh kind of interesting it, it all started just from a local reporter that just happened to shop in one of our stores and and saw my display of Indian uh-huh. arrowheads and right she just found them interesting and uh asked to do an, an article on it for the paper and um so after she did the article that's when the i guess the the university folks uh read the article and sent, sent a letter to the editor you know, basically saying what you just said—that people shouldn't be able to collect them—and uh, we're kind of kind of rude about it. Yeah. <laughs> Most arrowheads that are found by people and collected by people have virtually zero archaeological value. They're found out of context. They've either eroded, you know, through building highways or um, you know farming practices. So they're, it's not like they have a you know a great amount of knowledge that can be gained from them, other than just you know what they look like and mm-hmm. the general area they were found so myself and my kids have become interested in it and go we go out and we look for them and we haven't had any luck but maybe finding little pieces and, and bits and shards here and there but uh it's kind of a it's a fun family activity and it's uh it's kind of strange that anybody would have a problem with it what are, what are some of the laws that are actually in place what is the legality for going out and, and just looking for some arrowheads and taking them home if you do find them yeah um most most states you know, as long as you're finding it on private property, you mm-hmm. know, you're allowed to hunt. As long as you're not finding items that are that are associated with burials. So, I mean, if you start finding human remains, obviously you should call an archaeologist. But uh, most most artifacts you find are just surface finds. And they're, it's, as long as you're doing it on private property with permission, um, there's no problem at all with buying 
yeah. finding them, buying them, trading them if you you know choose to do so. There was a big big deal with the Florida collectors, and they actually had a undercover sting that they did. Uh, had game wardens uh, kind of infiltrate the collectors and trick them into you know saying because in Florida for years you it was legal to find artifacts in navigable rivers and collect them, mm-hmm. but they changed their laws saying that if you find an item in a navigable waterway, it's considered state property. Right. So if you pick that item up and then sell it, you're selling stolen property and uh, they use that to to get a lot of guys in trouble over it. So there there are people in jail right now for for finding arrowheads, taking them home, and uh, luckily, in some states, l- yeah, luckily most of the guys I believe got off with you know pretty hefty fines and probations. But but one person actually committed suicide over the deal that, oh, that was afraid of the looming federal charges, and uh, yeah. you know, so it it really it really caused a lot of problems that was really unnecessary. It's all over items that had zero archaeological value other than, you know, just what they look like. It's a great, great way to learn about history. It's a great physical outdoor pastime that people should encourage young folks to do. And, you know, like, you know, we kind of, when we had the uh, the round with the university folks, you know, they proclaim that they have a huge collection of arrowheads, but they're not on display. You yeah, know, nobody's like, ever seen them. Man. Right. Um, you know, I would much rather have a kid with a little frame of arrowheads like I was growing up that, jumped at any chance to show them to their friends and, yeah. uh, you know, study about them and learn learn more about the the ancient cultures that were here before we arrived. Yeah. So, the way I personally see it, and a lot of people, you know, agree with me that collect artifacts, uh, you know, they don't see it as a, as a, as they're hoarding or, or looking for them just to, you know, for the monetary gain that they almost see it as, as they're rescuing the arrowhead. If, if you leave it laying there long enough in a field or along a, roadway that's been cleared it's going to eventually get destroyed or or possibly you know just lost forever due to silt or erosion uh so it's it it's not like you're you're taking it as a way to to destroy it you know you're you're preserving it and sharing it with other people and again you know most arrowheads are extremely common it would be like civil war bullets at gettysburg mm-hmm. you know each bullet yeah it's a it's an artifact it's a piece of history but it's you know, you won't see a museum trying to display every, you know, mini ball that was fired in the Civil War. So right. it's it's a it's an interesting item, but also a very common one. Uh, there's a, a Native American uh, musician. He he had that. You know, said they were kind of like a, a spent shotgun shell. He said, <laughs> you know, a, an Indian wouldn't have put a whole lot of worth into a, in an arrowhead and made as big a deal about it as as modern people sometimes do. Uh, same way uh, in Vietnam, there are probably a few billion, you know, M16 empty shells laying there that technically are an artifact, but, <laughs> you know, nobody's going to try to hoard every single one of them. Tell us about uh, your hunting. Uh, do you, have you ever had any luck uh, going out and, and finding some pieces uh, on your own? Yeah, that's um, that's kind of what got me interested in. Uh, actually, the first arrowhead I had, my dad gave it to me, and he had found it when he was a kid, and, um, you know, that that thing just fascinated me so much that I, I wanted to, to find some more of them and used to go and look around at flea markets and yard sales and you'd find one occasionally, but, you know, eventually I decided I wanted to get into looking for them. And uh, we used to hunt mainly in Lafayette County and uh, it took me about a year of, of hunting to find my first perfect whole arrowhead and uh, that was a heck of a find for me, you know. and it, it wasn't, you know, anything just spectacular, but... 
you know, as a first find mm-hmm. for me, it was it was really neat to find it. And of course, that led to the obsession of you know many hours of hunting. And I've probably found you know several hundred pieces like that over the years since. Mm-hmm. Um, what's so, been what's been your what's been your your best piece you found? Um, probably my best piece was a large uh, type of point called a Stillwell point, and it was about a four inch uh, spear point. And it would be in the archaic period, which would be six to eight thousand years old. Hmm. So, a uh, pretty nice piece, and it was perfect and a good size one. So that was a nice find. And then uh, found a couple of uh, banner stones, which were pretty neat find. And that's kind of an interesting item because nobody knows really what the the purpose was for that item. And just um, what do they look like? Just so the listeners that that might not know. Um, usually, they're a you know they're a piece of stone, and they're they range from as small as a couple inches and to as large as seven or eight inches for a big one. But um, they're usually made out of either uh, quartz or uh, sometimes slate. Uh, it can also be made of a, a red clay stone here in Mississippi is what you usually find. Um, but they'll have a hole drilled completely through them. And just from the diameter of the hole and from the wear patterns, that you can tell the hole was formed by cane drilling, which they would take a piece of river cane and use some type of abrasive like flint chips or sand to to get the the hole in it, but nobody really knows for sure the purpose of putting that hole in there. Uh, archaeologists, lot lot of them think that they were uh, wait for an atlatl, which is a spear throwing device. Uh, but there's also a lot of evidence that kind of leans away from that theory. So uh, a lot of debate over what that item was used for, but they're pretty rare and hard to find. So. I like the I like the idea that your your dad gave you your first arrowhead, and that I mean, it basically spurred you on to become obsessed with historical pieces, and then go on to form part of your career. Yeah, later yeah. on, mm-hmm. and he, you know, he found his arrowhead. Just he was uh, his family grew up in Waterford, Mississippi, which is just north of Oxford, and uh, they were cotton farmers, you know, uh, sharecroppers. So uh, he would he would work a lot of time in the fields in the summers, uh, picking cotton. Uh, Chopping cotton, so that's where he found his arrowheads. So, hmm. what are some of the challenges that you, you face as a small business owner in, in 2016? Um, it's fairly smooth. There's a there's a lot of little things that that uh, you know personnel is always uh, a thing that's that's tough to manage uh, if you have multiple employees, hmm. um, and then the uh, the red tape with taxes and, and keeping up with all that kind of stuff, the accounting. Uh, and then in Oxford, it's it's kind of tough. Just uh, real estate, rental, you know, those kind of things are kind of high in yeah. Oxford. So, um, you know, just making it work monetarily is can be a challenge. Um, but if if it's like myself, if it's something you enjoy, it's it's not really like work. You know, it's mm. it's uh, it's a lot of hours. And and if you added up the hours you do when you own a business, you probably don't come out at a very good hourly rate but if you enjoy it you know it's worth doing for sure and there you have it the story of brock smith a local business owner from the town we broadcast from oxford mississippi home of Ole miss we like to share stories from people from all walks of life because here at our american stories we believe that everyone has a story to tell if you would like to share your story with us or know someone who has a story to tell you can always reach out to us at OurAmericanNetwork.org or you can drop us a line and leave a message at 844-627-8255. That's 
8255. Georgia, the whole day through, just an old sweet song, keeps Georgia on my mind. Georgia on my mind. This is Our American Stories, and on this day in history in 1960, Ray Charles went to number one on the U.S. singles chart. With Georgia on my mind. His cover of Hoagie Carmichael's 1930 standard became the first of three number one hits for the singer. And we're going to take a look at the story of this song. And our This Days in History always are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, a great place to study all the things that matter in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will get to you. Go to hillsdale.edu and catch all the great things that they do, especially their free online courses. Before we hear the Ray Charles version of this American classic in its entirety, and we love doing that, how dare anyone cut that song short, let's take a look back at the original song by Hoagie Carmichael for just a minute. Georgia, Georgia, the whole day through, just an old sweet song keeps Georgia on my mind. Georgia, and again, that's Hoagie Carmichael, first recorded in September of nineteen thirty with his orchestra. And this song has been recorded by so many artists, we just named a few. Billy Holiday, Louis Armstrong, Dean Martin, Jerry Reed, Glenn Miller, Michael Buble, Ella Fitzgerald, James Brown, Etta James, Deep Purple, The Righteous Brothers, Tom Jones, Van Morrison. That's crazy. And of course, Bing Crosby. Willie Nelson won a Grammy Award for Best Male Vocal Country Performance for his version in 1979. Willie also sang it for Ray Charles at his funeral in 2004. Let's take a listen to that version. Georgia Georgia The whole day through Just an old sweet song Keeps Georgia on my mind As always, Willie singing straight as an arrow. Jamie Foxx and Alicia Keys, backed by Quincy Jones and his orchestra, performed a new arrangement in honor of Ray Charles at the 2005 Grammy Awards. (laughs) For 
friend. Yeah. Georgia. Georgia. The whole day through. Just like the most sweet song keeps Georgia on my mind, my mind, my mind. Ooh. I said Georgia, oh Georgia, a song. It was not until Ray Charles' 1960 recording on the Genius Hits the Road. The song became a major hit. The song was recorded quickly in New York City. It took only four takes to complete. Usually, it took Ray 10 to 12 takes. The song reached the number one spot for one week in November 1960. And in this performance, the connection to the state was firmly made. And I'm talking about on March 7, 1979, in a mutual symbol of reconciliation after conflict over the civil rights issue, he performed the song at the Georgia General Assembly. That's the state legislature. After that performance, the connection to Georgia was firmly made forever, and the assembly adopted it as the state song in April of, two, in April of that year. But nobody performed or sang this song quite as well as Ray did. On this day in history again, Ray Charles, Georgia on my mind, went to number one, this won Grammy Award for Best Male Vocal, Best Pop Song. The album also won Best Male Vocal Performance Album. This is Our American Stories. Let's take a listen to Ray Charles, Georgia On My Mind. Georgia Georgia, the whole day through, just an old sweet song, keeps Georgia on my mind. Georgia, I said, Georgia. Georgia A song of you Comes as sweet and clear As moonlight through the pines Other arms reach out to me Other eyes smile tenderly Still in the peaceful dreams I see The road leads back to you I said, Georgia Oh, Georgia no peace I find Just an old sweet song Keep 
keeps Georgia on my mind. The arms reach out to me The eyes smile tenderly Still in peaceful dreams I see The road leads back to you Whoa Georgia, no peace, no peace I find, just an old sweet song, keeps Georgia on my mind, I said just an old sweet song, keeps Georgia And as we said before, it's a song you've just got to play in its entirety. And by the way, if you ever get a chance, listen to our Amart Ertigan hour, because there's so much of Ray in it. And Amart Ertigan was this Turkish guy, son of the Turkish ambassador, who discovered Ray Charles and essentially discovered American soul music and R&B. This is our American stories. Ray Charles, Georgia on My Mind, became a hit today on This Day in History. And this is Our American Stories, and we continue our conversation with Joel Kotkin, author of The Human City, Urbanism for the Rest of Us. And Joel, you talk about in the book how there's this enormous gap between what planners, politicians, and much of the business community are advocating for as it relates to how we all live. More density, and what most people, however, are looking for, particularly working in middle-class families, well, is more space and more affordability. And talk a little bit more about that disjoint. Well, I think partially what you have is you have, um, you, first of all, you have an ideology that's developed um, in the planning departments um, and adopted by the media, which uh, basically celebrates um, density and ur- urbanity as the key to everything. They, very often there will be report that will say big cities are more productive um, uh, that, let's say economically, but they never mentioned that the same report says it has nothing to do with density. In other words, a Houston or a Dallas, which is not all that dense, is actually a very productive place. You don't have to be Manhattan to be productive. Right. But, but you, so you, you have that. You also have, um, frankly, in this um, period that we live in today, um, enormous concentrations of capital in relatively small hands. 
the economy is driven by asset inflation. The way that, that people are trying to capture that is by building um, density. And, um, and there's even, a, I think, a sort of sensibility among developers that, well, you know what, these young people, they don't, they're never going to get married, or if they're going to get married, they're not going to have kids. And they're, and they're probably not going to want to own anything, and, they want to, and they're going to want to be renters for the rest of their lives. Now, all the survey data tells you that that's not the case, that actually most millennials, for instance, would like eventually to own a home. Most of them would like to have children. The fact that some of them are slow to get there is, has more to do with the economy than their, than their preferences. And I would also have to say that what kind of society are we really talking about? I mean, we're talking about a society where the birth rate is so low that, you know, you take the case of in Japan, a place that's also very expensive and very dense. By 2050, Japan will have more people over 80 than under 15. Yep. Um, I don't know if that's the kind of world I want to live in. Frankly, I don't think it's the kind of world I'd want to live in when I'm 80. Well, Joel, I mean, in the end, what a dark world that is. I mean, I almost, I, you know, I was reading about the city of Venice, which had 150,000 people 20 years ago and is down to 75. And a lot of it has to do with housing costs, but a lot of it has to do with birth rates and fertility rates. And I'm thinking, my goodness, Venice is committing suicide. Well, and, and what you get, is, uh, uh, this, this is something that you're already starting to see certainly not only in Venice, but in larger European cities. A lot of my original research in the book itself uh, began in part um, in a uh, project I was doing for the government of Singapore, which is faced with a similar problem. You're talking about a fertility rate that's almost half what you need to replace your current population. You know, I'm not out here saying everybody should go out and have 12 kids. The, the world isn't, um, even the, the advanced industrial world, is not ready for that. But we might want to think about kind of replacing ourselves. Right. I think that, to me, would be what is sustainable. But, and there's a, another part of this which is not really well articulated in the urbanist debates, but I've certainly run into it after I've spoken to people, and that is that, that there's a sense, uh, particularly among the environmental movement, that having less people is actually much better than having more, and that um, if we could sort of reduce the population to the bare minimum, then we'll have robots, and robots will do everything, and we'll have you know the philosopher princes will you know will 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 still exist, and everybody else will be redundant. And I think that is really a philosophy that that is really beginning to evolve. And when you talk to people, particularly in places like Silicon Valley, there is that notion. It's and um, and to me, it's a very anti-human notion. It's a, it's to me the idea that you don't even want really to accommodate families, that we would be better off if we were all autonomous people who had no connection really to a family member. That's actually considered somewhat of an ideal. And lastly, and, and I'm not a political conservative myself, but this also is very important politically because, as, um, as uh, Stan Greenberg, the Democratic pollster, has pointed out, single women are the largest constituency of the Democratic Party. Yep. And so you create a, an environment. When people have children, they may, you know, they could be liberal, they could be conservative, but they have a different way of looking at the world. You know, when, when you're single and you're not responsible for anything, you can spend your life worrying about global warming and the, and the whales. You know, when you're a parent, your first worry is, how are my kids going to do? You bet. Um, 
and and so you get a very different dialogue. Now, I think that this evolution is, is, is politically is relatively new because before, I mean, you can't say that a, that a Harry Truman or a Pat Brown or or Franklin Roosevelt was any less familial in their worldview than their Republican opponents. Um, but I think that that has begun to become a problem that we're beginning to see, and we see it in Europe, a, pol- a sort of post-familial politics. You bet. Uh, and I think that's something that, that I think is going to get stronger and stronger. And, and if, if young people can't buy homes and if they can't get enough space to have a family, this is the kind of society we're going to have, and I don't think uh, it's going to be very pretty. Well, I think the one competitive advantage conservatives may have is that they live up to their morals and values and have lots of kids, and the folks on the left don't. Um, this could become a voting problem down the road for the left. There's going to be no one to go to the voting booths. And well, so in this respect, um, th- that could be an interesting trend in the next 20, 30, or 40 years, Joel. I agree, but I think the, the problem is that, and I speak as somebody who's a lifelong Democrat, um, I think the problem is that, that the kind of society you would develop when you have a preponderance of people, let's say in some cases 30, 40 percent of people not having children, you have a society whose interest is not, is not really the future. The, the, its interests are pensions and security for, the, for that generation, what they can get in terms of, of subsidies, and much less about how do we create a world where our children are going to do better. And I think it's really a, not a right-left issue. It's a human or anti-human yeah. issue. Yeah, I think you're right about that. Um, you know, you quoted Greg Easterbrook of The Atlantic and Washington Monthly asking the question, and I'm going to quote, sprawl is caused by affluence and population growth, and which of these exactly do we propose <laughs> to inhibit? Tell us more well, about I, that. Well, I think it, it, it's both. I mean, you know, I live here in the state of California, um, where probably this ideology may be more pervasive than any place else. And what are we seeing now in places like Orange County, in Los Angeles, the Bay Area to a large extent? You have a a, a housing policy that essentially has driven up the price of housing to an extreme high rate. You can't build, increasingly, you can't build single-family homes. You can't build anything out on the periphery. So what you get is you get a bunch of older people who already have theirs, living in houses that have vastly increased in value, but there's no way of younger people going in. So when we look at where are young millennials, even the college educated, where are they going? Where are those populations growing? Austin, San Antonio, uh, uh, Nashville, places where young people can afford to live. I, I see this all the time when I talk to young people. Uh, you know, where are you going to go after you graduate? The only ones who are staying in Orange County for a large extent are the are the ones who are going to be living with their parents? Yep, yep. And and this trend, Joel, I think is just going to continue uh, over the next ten to twenty years as well, don't you? Yeah, I think it will, and I think it will become, in some senses, a great divide. It's not going to be discussed this year because we have such dysfunctional people running. But, yep. But I but I do think that this issue of what kind of future do we want? Do we want to provide for our children? the opportunity to own a home, the opportunity to have a family, the opportunity to live what we might call the American dream, or is that dream really at an end? And that increasingly, as you already see in parts of Europe, only the wealthy will be able to own homes. You'll have, you'll have a, a, a small group of people who will enjoy 
contact with the countryside. And most of us will live in these sort of, you know, almost like Soviet-style apartment blocks um, and, you know, you know, spend an hour on the bus trying to get to work. I mean, this, this is the vision that the urban planners and a lot of business, you know, I, where I have problems sometimes with my conservative friends is they want to blame the planners, they want to blame the government for everything. And I think, you know what? Business is right there. No, you're dead right. You're dead right. They're right there in collusion with the interests of the city planners, the ideology of the city planners, and the interests of the business people. And I think that is the difference. It's not necessarily an ideology. Businesses don't have ideology. They want profits. They want convenience. They want ease of access to workers. So I think you're right. It's a sort of an unholy marriage. I mean, here's a good example. In the Bay Area plan that's been adopted, all future growth has to take place in 4% of the urban area. Well, if I own property and have the money to build on that 4%, that's pretty guaranteed profits for me. Yep. What, you know, I remember talking once to a, a big developer in New York, and I, and I said, well, you know, what? And he said, well, I can't stand places like Houston. They said, why? He said, because any, any schmuck can build and compete with me. In, in a place like, like New York or Boston or San Francisco, only very well-capitalized wealthy developers right any hope of being able to do anything yeah. it's like a mini monopoly in the end joel and we're talking with joel kotkin and we're going to have him back and we want to dig in even further than human city i think this is one of these books where we tell you we like to take a deep dive this is one of them joel kotkin author of the human city urbanism for the rest of us joel we'll talk again soon right, thank you you bet thank you This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And you can catch all of our work at OurAmericanNetwork.org.